we have either come to Islam or we have remained as Muslims because we want to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala correctly and we want to follow the truth. So that's also related to the case where there's different opinion among uh, among the scholars, inshallah as I will mention later. <coughs> now I have divided the different opinion among the scholars uh, into four uh, types and this is my own uh, uh, and after reading many books on this topic I have come up with this division so you may ignore it if you wish <laughs> or inshallah you might uh, benefit from it. Uh, I have I have divided into uh, what I call practical uh, causes or practical reasons that have led to different opinions and then theoretical and then uh, differences of understanding and then problematic issues that have led to different opinions. Inshallah, I think as we discuss some of them, they will become uh, clear as to what exactly I mean by that. <coughs> Let us start with the practical differences because they are the most uh, obvious, easy to, easiest to understand, and in essence they are also the uh, easiest to deal with. Uh, the practical difference is what I mean by that, for example, is that when a scholar, and by the way, these are different opinions, and even if the scholar is as sincere as possible and uses all of his efforts uh, to come to the truth, these uh, causes may still exist may still cause uh, some differences to exist even among scholars who are as sincere as possible, who are not willing or are not uh, you know, trying to absorb or deviate from the, from the straight path. So when you put a question to a scholar, or when a scholar has to make a decision about a certain issue, sometimes there is a hadith about that issue. Now, some of these things are related to hadith in particular because the nature of the hadith, the body of hadith, for example, is different from the Qur'an. Uh, so therefore, many times, as I said, we'll be talking about hadith, but sometimes even uh, they are even related to uh, Qur'an. So when you ask a scholar a question, if there is a particular hadith about that issue, and this scholar is not familiar with that hadith because the body of hadith literature is quite quite large even some sahaba, not know the sahaba did not spend all of their time with the Prophet they had their families to take care of, they had their livelihood to maintain some like Abu Huraira spent all of his time with the Prophet except of course when he was with his wife <coughs> because he devoted himself to that, he lived in the mosque and, so even among the Sahaba, you can find this case where an issue comes up, a question comes up that requires an answer, that requires a solution, and there actually exists a hadith about that particular issue. However, the person who is being asked or the person who has to give the answer to that issue, he himself may not be familiar with that hadith. So what does he do? Well, if it's a question that needs an answer that time, of course, he will do some research, for example, nowadays, unless it's something oral like this. Most people have the ability, if you, if you, for example, if I receive a question, I have the ability to go, uh, or the time to go and search for it. Suppose I search for the answer, and there's a hadith existing, but I still don't find the hadith. 
So the mujtahid doesn't find the answer. However, the answer is needed. So what does he do? Abu Bakr, for example, during the time of Abu Bakr, a woman came to him, a grandmother, and asked what is her share in the inheritance. And he said, I find in the book of Allah no no share for you in the in her particular in her particular case. Uh Umar al-Khattab, for example, did not know about the uh, whether or not the hadith they did not know about the hadith concerning whether or not Majin or Majus should pay the uh jizya or not. However, these are decisions uh, or things that need to be uh, decided. So the mujtahid has to make istihad. Since he doesn't know the hadith, obviously if he knows the hadith, if, if, the, if Abu Bakr knew that the Prophet gave the grandmother one-sixth, then obviously he'll say the Prophet gave one-sixth, you have one If Umar knew the hadith about treat the majins like you treat the Ahl-Kitab, he would have made them pay Jizm. So they have to, in that case, the mujtahid has to make ijtihad. When he makes ijtihad, one of two things happen. Either his ijtihad is consistent with the hadith of the Prophet that he didn't know about, or it goes against the hadith of the Prophet One time Ibn Masood was once asked about what is the situation of a woman who got, who got married, however the mahra was not uh, declared or stated, because the mahr is not from the arkan of the duaj. And you can get married and you can state the mahr later. So he said, what is the, the situation of the woman who gets married? And uh, the question was put to him, what is the situation of the woman who gets married and her, her mahr has not been stated? Okay. And her husband dies before they get a chance to decide what is the mahr. So Ibn Mas'ud, Sahabi, he didn't know of any hadith of the Prophet about this, so he had to make it jihad. So he said that her uh, mahar should be the mahar of the women who are similar to her. And in other words, if there's some women who are similar to her, like her sisters, whatever, and they got a certain mahar, then she should get the same mahar from the, you know, from the inheritance of the, I mean, it comes out first from the, the husband's wealth before inheritance. So one person said, that this ijtihad that Abdullah bin Masood said is the same conclusion or the same judgment that he heard the Prophet make in a similar case. Abdullah bin Masood said that was the happiest day of his life. And that he was able to make ijtihad and he knew for certain that that ijtihad was correct and consistent with the hadith of the Prophet. So in the case where the, the scholar makes ijtihad, and his ijtihad is in accordance with the hadith of the Prophet that we find out, we find that out later or we discover that. Alhamdulillah, that's pretty simple. Right? But what about the cases where a scholar makes ijtihad in that case and the ijtihad he makes may go against the hadith of the Prophet Abu Huraira, for example, used to have the opinion that if you wake up by Fajr time during the month of Ramadan, and you are in the state of Janaba, you need to make uh, also you have to make also. and you wake up after the time of Fajr already begins, he said in that case you do not fast it. And in other words he's saying it's a requirement that you make the also before Fajr. Now it says 
because he did not know about the sunnah or the practice of the Prophet and would respect that. So, some people went, took this fatwa, actually it wasn't even his fatwa, he, he got the fatwa from another one of the Sahab. But in any case, they took his fatwa, they took that statement, and they went to some of the wives of Prophet Muhammad and mentioned that to them, and they said, no. Sometimes we would get up with the Prophet and we had not had ghusl, and we would make ghusl at budget time and fast that. So here we have the case where we find out the hadith and the hadith contradicts what's disclosed. So they went back to Abu Huraira and they informed Abu Huraira about that situation and immediately, what did he do? He changed his opinion. And he went according, of course, to the hadith process. And he had, you actually have no choice in that matter, right? You have to follow the hadith of the Prophet the sunnah of the Prophet you cannot use your mind or your own ishtihad and make some conclusion and find it goes against the hadith of the Prophet but you say, well, that's okay, I'm still going to follow my ishtihad. And we learn that from the, from the Sahaba, from Abu Bakr. And the example I gave earlier, from Umar al-Khattab, from Abu Huraira, we find that this is the case, that if you make ishtihad or if someone makes ishtihad and his ishtihad is wrong and he has shown that it is wrong, that it goes against, for example, hadith of the Prophet then he has to change his opinion and he has to follow the uh, hadith of the Prophet Now was that mushtahid, was he sinful in what he did? No, he wasn't sinful, in fact, uh, opposite, he was, inshallah, gets ajr. And if he was sincere and he was trying to follow the truth, and he wanted to follow the truth, then even if he was wrong, he would get ajr. Because the Prophet said that if a hakim or if a judge decides something, and he exercises his judgment to decide something, and he is wrong, or if he's right, he will get two rewards. If he's wrong, he will get the reward of using his effort to find what was the truth. <laughs> so that means that, for example, in this case, and I'm kind of uh, taking this one case and giving other principles related to it, <coughs> because of the, the time. According to my watch, it's already 9.30, but that's all right of time, so don't worry about that. Actually, it's 7, that's 9.30 this morning, so I guess we still have quite a bit of time. <laughs> so, the, uh, so from this, uh, from these incidences, from this situation, and from this hadith in the Prophet we, we can see some, some important principles that we should keep in mind when dealing with, uh, Different opinion among the scholars. Number one, if the scholar makes a mistake that is not a blemish on his scholarship, that is not a blemish on his piety. I mean, Abu Bakr made an ishtihad which was wrong. Omar made ishtihad which was wrong. Abu Huraira was following an opinion which was wrong. Not only is it not a blemish on their on their character or on their scholarship. But if we have no reason to doubt their intention, we have to believe that, inshallah, they will be rewarded for what they did. And that's not just true with respect to Abu Bakr and Omar and so forth, but that is true for all the scholars who came after them, that we have no reason to believe that they have some wrong intention in what they're doing. Like Imam Malik, Abu Hanifa, Shafi, or Ahmad. I always try to state them in chronological order so nobody thinks I'm... If anybody asks me, why did you say it that way? I'll just say that's the chronological order. I could give it alphabetical order, but that gives it the chronological order. And they, they made mistakes in their, in their uh, 
الاجتهادات ومن الاجتهاد. And if we see an obvious mistake, then in other words, they gave the, they made an ijtihad which goes against a hadith of the Prophet Then our approach to that is that in this case he was wrong. We have to follow the Prophet and may Allah reward this mistake for his effort. So that does not change his status at all. Unfortunately, sometimes when you when you when you say that, when you say, for example, oh. Imam Shafi was wrong on that point. And people get the, the impression sometimes that ah, you are attacking Imam Shafi. How can you say that Imam Shafi was wrong? If it's a case like this, this is one of the cases, again, this is one of the cases of uh, difference of opinion among the among the scholars. If the case like this where you have a clear hadith of the Prophet and you have, for example, Imam Shafi's statement that uh, goes against the hadith of the Prophet then either the hadith is wrong or Imam Shafi is wrong. It is the best thing to assume, the best thing to assume is that Imam Shafi did not know this hadith. There's other good things you can assume, but this is one of the best things that you can assume. So you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to reward him for his efforts, but on this point he was wrong. Is he still a scholar? Is he still an Imam? Sure, of course. I mean, have you ever been in a course where you make one mistake and you get an F? I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I heard the schools are tougher here in England than in the States, but I hope and not to that extent. And if that, if, it, if that were the case, you know, then every, every one of us, then we should consider ourselves yeah, F in, in Ding or F in everything, because I'm sure every one of us makes mistakes every now and then. So that, that uh, should be our attitude with respect to uh, recognizing, for example, a case like this, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, to reward mujtahid, and at the same time, we follow uh, the correct hadith of the Prophet And in fact, all of these amma uh, of the Ahl al-Sunnah throughout the history, all of them, showed it. I mean, this is what they taught us. This is what they taught us. That if there's a, a, a hadith which is authentic, that goes against something that they have said, then just ignore what they have said and follow the authentic hadith. Because in the Quran we are obliged absolute obedience to Allah and His Messenger. Nobody else. Not to Abu Bakr, not to Umar, not to Imam Abu Hanifa, not to Imam Shafi, not to Ibn Taymiyyah, not to anyone today. We are obliged to have absolute obedience to Allah and His Messenger. And if anyone says anything that goes in contrary to what these messengers said, uh, that to what the messenger uh, said, either uh, while uh, conveying the Quran or through his Sunnah, then we have to politely reject what they said and follow the Hadith or the truth coming from the Prophet. <coughs> Some people go off into other things and say, "Oh well, my Imam, or that might be, must have known that Hadith." For example, Imam Shafi must have known had that Hadith, but he didn't apply it for some reason, or he rejected it for some reason, and so forth. Well, that's that's possible. That's possible. But from the point of view of principle, what principle should we apply here? It is much safer and much more correct from the point of view of the, the text of the Quran Sunnah. For you to assume uh, first, for example, that Imam Shafi didn't know that hadith and follow the hadith correct, then follow the hadith, and then you may study why did Imam Shafi differ from you. And if you find, oh, he has some proof that. 
that hadith was abrogated, for example, or something of that nature, then you follow Imam Shadid opinion and you don't follow the hadith. If he has some proof that you're not supposed to follow the hadith. In other words, al asl or the basic position, the first position is follow the hadith, if it's authentic, follow the hadith. Then, but if you're still worried about why did Imam Shafi have a different opinion, instead of saying, no, Imam Shafi must have known that hadith and he must not have followed it for some reason, you are making an assumption there and you are making a big assumption and based on that assumption you are following Imam Shafi rather than following a hadith of Prophet This is a mistake. You have no proof for what you said. You just made that assumption. Oh, he must have known that hadith. No one, as Imam Shafi himself wrote, about the Arabic language and about the Sunnah of the Prophet no one knows all of the Arabic language, although if you take all the Arabs together, they know the Arabic language. And no one knows all, no one person knows all the Sunnah of the Prophet That's Imam Shafi himself saying that. So instead of making this assumption that you rather follow Imam Shafi and assume that he must have known the Hadith and he must have some reason to not to follow it, you follow the Hadith of the Prophet and if you want to study it and, and, and discover why Imam Shafi didn't follow it, then you might find, yes, he has some evidence not to follow it, that he knew the hadith and so forth. And I can give you uh, some examples of that if I remember to. <laughs> Inshallah. Sometimes, the person knows the hadith. However, in his opinion, he feels that the hadith is not authentic, so if the hadith is not authentic, it is actually not, you cannot look at it as an evidence. So in that case, if the hadith is not authentic, then he will, he will ignore it as an evidence and he will make ijtihad again. Based on other evidence. And for example, he might know another Quranic verse which is somewhat related to the question. Or he might know another hadith which is somewhat related to the question, so instead of following this hadith which is not authentic in his opinion, he uses those other two evidences and he derives the conclusion from that evidence. Okay? However, that hadith might be authentic. Maybe the way that he himself heard that hadith, for example, especially in the early years, you could have, uh, well, let's leave this, I guess, for now right here. No, that's not. <laughs> you could have, especially in the early years, for example, you could have the one hadith that reaches, let's say, Imam Malik through an authentic chain. And he knows that this hadith is authentic. However, that same hadith reaches, for example, Abu Hanifa through a weak chain. So he studies it and he looks and he said, well, this hadith is not authentic. So he ignores it and he makes the ijtihad based on other evidence. Well, Imam Malik knows because of the different chain that he had, the different way that he received that hadith, he knows that that hadith is authentic. So he bases his opinion on that hadith. So you have the hadith, you have the opinion of the Imam Malik which follows the hadith. You have the opinion of Abu Hanifa which goes against that hadith because the way he received it, it was not authentic. Now I'll give you an example from uh, Imam Shafi. In the, in the Shafi'i Madhab, uh, most of the Shafi'i scholars, especially those who perhaps do not have that strong of a background in Hadith, most of the Shafi'i uh, scholars are of the opinion that if you touch, if you touch a woman, okay, 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes in the Quran, this means uh, talking about uh, making wudu, or purifying yourself before the prayer. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions if you touch women. Now here, the uh, touch here, I mean, you cannot really, you know, in, in English we do not have uh, a structure where Sometimes the, the, the word in Arabic tells you that two people are involved or it's an intensive word meaning that uh, uh, and <coughs> stressing the action itself and so forth. We cannot really translate those into English. However, you could understand this verse to mean touch as in touch. Okay. So in the Shafi Mother, any touch, any touch between a man and a woman, any woman, you have to make wudu before that. Okay, this invalidates your wudu. Okay, so Imam Shafi derived that from this uh, this word from the Quran. That was the evidence that he had. However, <laughs> however, at the same time, though he knew the Hadith of Aisha, in which it states that the Prophet ﷺ would kiss her sometimes, or actually, he said he used to kiss some of his wives, and they said must be used to do it. <laughs> So they have the hadith of Aisha in which she says that the Prophet would kiss some of his wives. By the Misa can also be meaning this one of them, one or some of his wives, and then go and pray without making wudu. Okay. That goes against the, the Shafi Muslim. But this is a perfect example of the kind of thing that I was talking about. It's an authentic hadith actually according to most of the hadithing. It is an authentic hadith. But it reached, the way it reached Imam Shafi, he was not Convinced that this is an authentic hadith. However, after stating this, after stating his conclusion that uh, any touch of a woman you have to make wudu, he said, however, if the hadith of Aisha is authentic, then that's my okay, So here we know that he knew this hadith. And we know that he did not think it's authentic. But he stated clearly that this, if this hadith is authentic, then in other words, my madhab is not if you touch any woman you have to make wudu, but my madhab is, 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 is. So there we have uh, that case where actually the scholar knows the hadith, but because of the way it reached him, he doesn't think the hadith is authentic, while in fact the scholars of hadith or other scholars know that it is authentic. So therefore he ignores it as an evidence and he follows uh, any other evidences that he has to make ijtihad and again his ijtihad may be incorrect and go against what other scholars say. Here's another case where uh, it is fairly simple, well, fairly simple for those of you who are into hadith <laughs> to be able to go and see what do the ulama of hadith say about it. Because like any, any specialty, you know, if you, uh, you know, if your teeth are hurting, for example, you probably don't go to a gynecologist to ask him, you know, what's wrong with my teeth, right? And you go to the specialist in that field. And you trust the decision. I mean, even if you go to a general practitioner, excuse me, you know, <laughs> you cannot always trust the, uh, the conclusion of the general practitioner, right? Or he, he may not always be able to help you, he'll have to send you to a specialist. So similar with respect to hadith, and if you want to know if a hadith is authentic or not, you should go to those people who are specialized in hadith. Unfortunately, not every faqih is a muhaddith. Not every muhaddith is a faqih, but we're talking about faqih today. So. 
Not every person who writes and deals and studies with fiqh is specialized or really is deep into hadith. And that's why you'll find in many of the books of fiqh, historically speaking, you'll find many weak and even sometimes fabricated hadith in the books of fiqh. So, they might reject the hadith which is authentic <coughs> in their books and say, well, this is the hadith that, uh, for example, Imam Shafi or Imam Malik didn't accept it or the hadith and accepted it, so therefore we're just going to ignore it and, and make ishtihad. So here you go to the scholars of hadith, if they say this hadith is authentic, again, it's, it's, you know, I'm starting with the easy cases. <laughs> I'm hoping maybe we'll take up all the time with the easy cases, I don't have to worry about the more typical cases. Again, in that case, you ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, to reward the mujtahid for what he did, but you follow the truth, you follow what is correct. A slightly, a slightly different case, and perhaps this is a little bit more difficult, uh, because now we're again getting a little bit deeper into, uh, into the area of ulama uh, al-hadith, or the, the science of the hadith. And this is wherein now we take the same hadith, Okay. With the same chain, for example, the same source. Remember last time I said we have Malik and Abu Hanifa, and each one got the hadith through a different way. So he got it through an authentic way, he got it through a weak way, so he rejected and he accepted. What's a little bit more difficult is where you find the same, uh, one hadith, the same chain, and two scholars disagree about whether that one hadith was authentic or not. You understand the differences between the two. So now we're talking about the same, uh, basically the same data to use modern terms. We have the same data. In the first case, the two people had different data, so they ended up with different conclusions about the hadith. But now we have one data, and one examines it, and he concludes it's authentic, and the other one concludes that it is uh, not authentic. That's a much more difficult case, because here, and you have to now really, here you really have to refer to the specialists of hadith, uh, for them to determine which one of these two arguments was correct and so forth. And even then, sometimes the, the scholars of hadith themselves might differ. There's one case, it's a rare case, alhamdulillah, I mean, it's not, it's not a common case, but there's one case I can give you in which at least one scholar said the same hadith, about the same hadith that it's fabricated, somebody else said it's weak, Somebody else said it's Hassan, and somebody else said it's Sahih. And they're all well-known scholars of Hadith. Okay, but as I said, alhamdulillah, as a, as a rare case, usually the scholars of Hadith, the, and it, throughout history, the leading scholars of Hadith are well-known, and usually, alhamdulillah, they pretty much agree upon uh, what is the conclusion uh, concerning uh, that Hadith. So these are... <coughs> Some of the practical reasons, uh, for example, Hadith, uh, scholar didn't hear the uh, Hadith, he didn't know about Hadith, or he didn't uh, receive it through uh, authentic means, and so forth. So therefore, he has to make jihad. Inshallah, when uh, he makes jihad, even if he's mistaken, Inshallah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward him. But it's our obligation to, uh, so to speak, neglect his opinion when it is wrong, and follow the Hadith or the way of the Prophet Muhammad uh, there's other aspects that are uh, related to uh, your practical differences, but I want to discuss uh, some of the other. We have until we have until when? Five o'clock. Quarter past five. And I said I will leave you plenty of time for questions. No, no. Okay. 
we'll see about that. <laughs> I may have changed my mind. Uh, so another uh, area, and this is a much now. This is this is really uh, the first the first area that we discuss is relatively simple, relatively easy, uh, and anyone in most cases can really find what is the correct approach in this case. Is this hadith authentic or not? You go to the scholar of the hadith and you can find out, inshallah, if the hadith is authentic or not. However, we have another set of reasons for difference of opinion among the scholars, and this set is much more difficult because, uh, <coughs> and the, uh, this is really based on, on it's, well, it's based on a science. This is the science of usul al or the, uh, what I call Islamic legal theory. It's called Islamic legal theory because it seems nobody applies it, so it's just theory. <laughs> but this is Usul al Now in the case of Usul al we have, as I said, uh, a completely different situation in that now the method methodology that is being used is different. And because the methodology is being used is different, I mean when you talk about the four madahab, for example, the four well-known madhab. When we talk about four different schools of fiqh, we're really talking about four different schools of usul or four different methodology or approaches to fiqh. And actually, uh, I don't know, I mean, I don't want to, this is not a lecture on usul but actually even among those four, if we wanted to break it down a little bit more, we really have two major schools or major approaches the approach of what are known as the jurist and the approach of the Mutikilimun. What we have here now is a difference in the methodology of how to uh, derive Islamic law. How to derive Islamic law. And this is this is this is really the topic where and a large book has been written about this topic and so forth. I'll just give a couple of examples and sometimes I'm trying to pick those examples that I will have to explain as little as possible. <laughs> Alright, I don't see any that uh, virtually no explanation. Like, uh, well, let's take, let's take, oh, what? Let's take an example here. Okay, you can tell me if I'm doing something completely wrong. <laughs> this is a question of, uh, of Umum, it's called Umum al-Muqtada. Okay, Umum al-Muqtada. This is the case where in the, in the Arabic language, sometimes, uh, a word or, or, or some, any, some portion of the sentence is, is not stated. However, it can be understood or it is implied or you know that it is implied. However, sometimes the, the, the extent or, or, uh, and what exactly is implied, sometimes there's a difference between. Okay. I'll, I'll give you an example from the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about those who, uh, who are fasting, uh, and, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that those who are uh, sick, who are ill, or who are traveling, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say about them? 
The one who is sick or who is traveling, he has to fast the same number of days, other days. In other words, while traveling, while traveling or sick during Ramadan, you don't have to fast during. Alright. Now, no one except for a school, which is called the Bahri Madhab, no one applies that verse in the way that it is stated. In other words, there is something not stated in the verse, however it is understood. It is understood sometimes through linguistic means, sometimes because of other evidences and so forth. Because the, the verse literally says that whoever is uh, sick or traveling, then he has to fast the same number of other days. What does that mean? Have any of you ever been sick during Ramadan? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you don't, if you were all like 12, 13 years old, I could imagine no is the answer. Uh, okay. Did you ever fast while sick during Ramadan? Hmm? Okay. So you fasted while you were sick during Ramadan. Did you make up those days again later? Okay. Why? Because we know through other evidences that what this verse means is that uh, there's something that isn't stated actually in the in the uh, verse, but we know that that's the meaning. Okay, the verse is, the verse's meaning is whoever is maridan or ala suffering, and he breaks his fast, then he must fast the same number of days there. Okay. They said there's only one school of Fiqh, which is the Dahri Manha, which we will not worry about, that says, no, if you are, if you are traveling or you're sick and you still fast, that doesn't matter, you have to make up those days there. But we know from other evidence, as I said, that the meaning of this verse is that if you are traveling or you're sick, and this is the part that isn't mentioned, and you break your fast, then you have to make it up on other days. So this is, this is, this missing portion or not stated portion. I was saying missing one time in, the, in, the, in a lecture one time and something like that. So I said, you know, what do you mean it's missing? Okay, it's not stated. This is not stated portion. This is known as al-Muqtada. Okay. Now the question is, sometimes, like in this case, the Muqtada or the non-stated portion is very clear and all the scholars agree that this is the meaning. You won't worry about the Bible. I said three or four times. <laughs> okay, that's a clear case. What about the case in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in which the Prophet has stated, again, I'm going to give you now the literal meaning of what he has stated. Okay? That Allah has uh, removed, and in other words, this will not be present among this ummah. Allah has removed from this ummah mistake, and actions done out of mistake, forgetfulness, or compulsion. This hadith is about this. It's an authentic hadith. What does it mean? Does it mean what he said? Yani, does it mean uh, just the words that he said? Or is there a muqtada, which is a very common thing in the Arabic language? Is there something that he did not state? Well, it's clear and everyone agrees that there's something not stated here. Because what the hadith literally states is that you will not find 
people making mistakes, you will not find people doing things that are forgetfulness, and you will not find people having to do things that are caution. But we know that that's the case. We know that we, I mean, I've done things that are forgetfulness, I mean, related to, for example, Salat, huh? sometimes you make a mistake, uh, you forget something in the Salat, right? So these things exist in the Ummah, these things exist, so that obviously is not what the Prophet meant. Instead, Allah has removed something related to those things. <laughs> he has removed something in relation to those things. What? If you are, if you, if you make a mistake, are you a sinner? Are you a sinner? Hmm? Okay, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has removed the sin of that thing, right? So that in the hereafter, if you do something by mistake or forgetfulness or under compulsion, you are not considered a sinner and in the hereafter you will not be a sinner. Hmm, but could it imply something else? See, now there's some who say that if there's a muqtada or if there's a, a non-stated portion, then you, 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 the, the, the thing that you, uh, assume about its meaning is the minimum possible. What else could there be besides sin in this hadith? Sin has to do with the other world, right? The hereafter. What about this world? What about the, the hukum or the ruling of the thing? Okay. So here the muqtada, some scholars will say the muqtada is just the sin. Okay, Allah has removed the sin of these actions. Okay, let's say no, the muqtada is the sin and the hukm. And they will bring evidence from other hadith and so forth to show that the Prophet has shown that when you make a mistake or if you uh, do something out of forgetfulness, also the ruling of that thing has been uh, removed. I'll give you an example where these two schools now differ, these two approaches to this question. Is there is there generality or can you assume more than one thing with respect to the muqtada or it has to be the minimum possible? Okay, this is a theoretical difference, right? Right? You take a verse in the Quran or you take a hadith in which there is a muqtada or something not stated. This is a theoretical difference about how to deal with that. And each school each school has their evidences for why you either generalize it or you don't generalize it. Okay, now this is not a class on the uh, of so I will not go into the evidences for both. So suppose you're praying, alright, so you're in prayer, and someone comes in and says, Salaamu Alaikum, and you forget you're in prayer for a second, or out of mistake thinking it's okay, because it used to be okay, you remember those hadiths that used to be okay, and you forget those hadiths in which the navigate. <laughs> you say, Salaamu Alaikum back. Okay? Have you now invalidated your prayer? And is the Salat now what? <laughs> yes? How many say yes? You've invalidated your prayer. Let's see what another of you people want. <laughs> Okay, alright. How many say no, you haven't invalidated your prayer? How many of you weren't praying in the first place, apparently? <laughs> A lot of people didn't raise their hand in either yes or no. This is 
Javer Sheikh Idris, when he first came to England many, many years ago, studying, I think, in the University of London for his PhD in philosophy, he said one time they had a debate between a, uh, a priest and an atheist about the existence of God. After the debate, they took a vote from the audience. Which one do they agree with? You believe, do you agree with the priest that yes, God exists? Do you, believe, do you agree with the atheist that doesn't exist? Sheikh Jaffer abstained. He's the only one who abstained. Everybody else said, yes, I believe, I don't believe. He said, what do you mean you abstain? He said, yes. He said, I don't agree with him that there's no God, but I don't believe in this man's God. <laughs> and so here, I don't know what the abstention here means. <laughs> but it's part of the answer to this question depends on uh, how do you how do you deal with this problem among Muqtadah? If you say that the hukum, the ruling, and the sin is removed, then the person has not invalidated his prayer. Because Allah has removed the ruling and the sin of things that you do out of forgetfulness or a mistake. If, however, you say, no, just the sin has been removed, the ruling remains, that means now you have invalidated your prayer. So because of the different uh, approaches to this one question, you will come up with different... Uh, okay, inshallah. Uh, you will come up with different uh, different, uh, different conclusions. So, as I said at the beginning, this is a very uh, large topic, and we begin uh, very late to give the Sheikh of Abul Aziz a chance to... Uh, give you a lecture which is probably more important than uh, this lecture. So I'm going to have to stop now so we do have some time for question and answer before we, I think we have another program later today, or soon today. So uh, I will not even try to give you the, the meaning, what do I mean by the other two groups. Uh, if you come, uh, let's say, late for the prayer or it doesn't have to be late, actually. The first line is full, and you come and you're the only one in the second line. Uh, if you pray in that in that situation where you're the only one in the second line, is your prayer invalid as the hadith of the Prophet Yes, there is a hadith of the Prophet that says that the one who prays by himself and rolls by himself, is, uh, his prayer is not, uh, is not valid, or he must repeat his, uh, the prayer. Uh, so, many people have different views of how to understand this hadith, and in fact that's the third category dealing with understand. So if you come now to the roll, to the line, and the roll is full, and they're already in prayer, what do you do? Some people say you tap someone, and pull them back, and so forth. But this is, uh, this is not confirmed from the Sahaba or Tabayin or anything that they, they used to do this kind of thing, tap someone and pull them back. Uh, Allah seems that the strongest opinion, like other aspects of, of the Salat, and if you cannot, for example, join the Imam and make a rope uh, next to the Imam, like other aspects of the Salat, you do as much as you can, and the thing that you cannot do, you're not held responsible for. So in this case, you have no way to uh, join the line. You're, you're supposed to join the line. There's no question that if you come and there's room in the line and you pray by yourself in the back, this is what the hadith is talking about. There's no question about that. That if there's room in the line and you pray, 
all the scholars agree that this is the kind of thing that the hadith is talking about. There's room in the line and you pray by yourself in the back of the mountain. However, uh, if the line is full, then you don't, you don't have the ability to uh, fulfill the condition of either joining the line or having someone with you in the line. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لا يطلب الله نفسًا إلا That Allah does not bear, uh, burden any, any soul beyond what it can bear. So in that case, you do what you what you can do. The only thing you can do is to not join the line, and you obviously the prayer takes precedence over being in line with someone else. Okay, then you pray by yourself in that line. If someone comes and joins you, that's fine. If someone doesn't join you, that's why. The the problem with tapping, first of all, there's no evidence for doing that. There's evidence, as I said, in the verses, we're not doing it. And, and then when you, when you do that, then you also disrupt the, the first line. You either make a gap in the first line or you'll make everybody move. And then there'll be an opening. And that gap is also supposed to be full because the first line is supposed to be full first, as described in Hadith. So that means that you, you should pull someone back and then take his place in the line, maybe. <laughs> to the So, there's some problems with that other opinion. This opinion at least has the support of that Quran verse. I mean, how do Imam will use different in many cases? How do you say that? But still a lot of people do insist uh, to follow them instead of following the Sulaimah Sallallahu which is a direct quote. But they do so, and uh, a lot of them they say, if you don't uh, follow an Imam, you're not a Muslim. You don't follow an imam, you're not a Muslim. They mean Imam Malik. That was not my statement, I was just repeating. They usually do this sort of thing over here a lot. Well, as I said in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala orders us, Ya Illadina Anati Allah wa Rasul. And in many, many places we have to, the obedience is to Allah and His Messenger. Well, the Prophet said that there's no obedience to the Creator, uh, to the created, if it involves disobedience to the Creator. So, uh, yeah, there's no, there's nothing we can see in the Quran or in the Hadith that points to the fact that you have to have an Imam and follow some Imam besides the Imam of the Prophet. And there's no evidence for that. If someone, if someone's going to make a statement like, I mean, the way you said it is between Islam and Kufr. Either you have Imam or you're not a Muslim, that means there should be some pretty clear evidence uh, about that. And verses, not just one verse, maybe verses will fly. Many hadith about it, I'm sure. So uh, the burden of proof for something like that is upon the one who said that, and uh, I don't believe they can offer any proof for that. There are no proof because our question is, I mean, who were there for Imam? Well, regardless of the, I mean, you don't even have to bring the Imam into the picture. The question is, if if we are obliged to follow an Imam, any Imam, regardless of who who they might be talking about in particular, and if we don't do it, we're not a Muslim. Obviously, this is something that must be proven from the Quran. You cannot make such a thing. I mean, this is I mean, to to uh, and. And, and to, to speak about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his deen without him, 
this is the greatest sin, or one of the greatest sins that you could commit. So, and in this kind of statement, as I said, he, he has to bring some strong proof in the form. So, and you did decide the position of like someone which wants to not uh, leave out the one who uh, does not have the ability uh, to study different uh, opinions, uh, then he has to follow the score. I mean, even those many people nowadays who are talking about, no, no, we don't follow any imam at all, we don't believe in this taqlid. They don't have a they're following scholars. They're following some scholars. I mean, probably even some scholar told them that. Right? And even scholars themselves, sometimes they have to make taqlid. If you have a hadith and you don't have the snad of it, and you don't have the book that wherein it's found and so forth, uh, and you don't have the, uh, the ability, for example, you're not a muhadith, you're going to have to turn to the scholars' hadith and see what do they say about it. However, the intention always, and this is some of the things that, uh, that I would have mentioned at the end of the talk, had this been uh, a complete talk as the brother referred to. The, the point is the intention has to be to follow the truth. If someone doesn't have that intention, then he is a sinner, and if this is a sin, to have the intention not to follow the truth, in other words, the truth comes to you, and it is shown to you, and it is clear to you, and you still reject it and insist on following something other than that, you are a sinner without any question, this is something agreed upon by all of the scholars. And if you are shown the truth, and you can understand it and see that that's the truth, but you insist on following something else, uh, and you don't have any evidence for the thing that you're following, this is a sin. So following an imam or following uh, a scholar, I mean, for example, uh, I mean, if you don't know something, you have to turn. You have to ask the scholars if, if, if you don't know something. Okay? But if you ask the scholar and he gives you evidence and and he shows you that what he's saying is true, and you have no evidence to the contrary, you just heard some opinion or some statement from someone, then you have no right to reject what he said and follow it. But to follow an imam, uh, or to follow scholar's opinion, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as you have the intention to follow the truth, you're following him not because of who he is, but because you have the intention to follow the truth, and any time you see the truth, as these imams said, then you'll follow the truth. I mean, a true... A true muqallid of either Abu Hanifa or Imam Malik or Shafi or Ahmed, a true muqallid who follows their statements should also follow their statements. Many of them said something like, if there's a hadith which is sahih, then it's Muhammad. Why do you follow them in everything except that point? Doesn't make any sense. One question. What the brother was saying. Most majority of people in India, Pakistan, Burundi, Akai, from Burundi, Africa, and then they trace the lineage back to Sir Abdul Qadir Jilani, and then they talk that they are nearly Hanafi, India, Pakistan, this majority are Hanafi. And also they are influenced by the Shia Akai. All the Shias they have a Imam, and part of their belief is in believing in Imam, so many of these group of Shias. So part of their belief 
which we in our group called shirk, you know, the part in shirk in the sense of invoking the imam, the go to everything to bring through the imam, which different way Shia, Sunni Muslims, which the ulama can explain. Ordinary people like us living in this town, Bradford, or this uh, coming to our mosque, a brain we will try to get us down, a shirk who's committing a shirk, who's going worshiping grave or thing in the mosque, or doing all the crazy things. He uses one of the clever methods to get us down. His oh, which imam do you believe in? Even then, if you don't say, you know, you don't believe in any imam. You're Arab, you're LNG, or you are this, you're doing jihad, you don't believe in any imam, you believe in yourself, astaghfirullah. You see, he will try to get you down in that way that you don't believe in Imam. Very simple. You say, I confirm all Imam existed. I believe in the Hadith. There were four Khulfai Rashidin. You don't believe the four Khulfai Rashidin existed. Four Imam existed. Islam, basic history of Islam, you know. You say, I confirm that. Of course, there were four Imam. But you and me, we are practicing Quran and Hadith and in our everyday Islam, what we are playing, how are, we are not invoking the Imam. Are you invoking your Imam? Invoking Imam is that he is putting his Imam, that he is going through the Imam. You see, that's what the Shia says, that the Imam has become important. Because he doesn't ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly like you and me, we are asking Allah directly. And the, using the Sunnah or the way the Prophet is given on him. So that, what they try to put, give fatwa on us, you see these uh, people who do wrong things. Oh, they have no imam. Of course we believe in that four in Muhammad. You don't believe in Mawiyah Jesus, you don't, don't believe in uh, Imam Hussain. Okay. Oh, I don't know. I didn't realize there was something back. Okay, the, the first question here says uh, most Muslims pray differently and some argue that Imam Abu Hanifa met the Sahaba and they prayed like him and if Abu Hanifa was praying differently the Sahaba would have corrected him. Is this true? Uh, first of all, the uh, Hanifa did not meet any of the Sahaba, he's not considered one of the uh, Sahaba. So that, therefore, the assumption that the Sahaba would have corrected him uh, is not is not correct. But actually, we have an even bigger problem, probably, and this applies to the Hanafi Madhab as it applies to the other Madhab. If you read the the books of Sikh from from the different Madhab, and I mean the the standard books, there are, in each Madhab there are some standard books, you know, like Al-Mumni from the Hanbalis and Majmua. From the Shafi's and Qasr al-Qadir and, uh, uh, Sarafi books. The big book. Anyway, if you, if you read those books, the thing that you, that you come up with a lot, and I've experienced this a lot because I like to read stuff and I like to read different from the because I believe the truth is in there, uh, in the different Madahab. And inshallah, we will find the truth if we look and we're sincere in our look. But what I found a lot is that the thing that people claim, oh, this is the Hanafi mother. We do this because this is the Hanafi mother. We do this because this is the Shafi mother. 
We actually said in the Muslim many times that thing that they're claiming has nothing to do whatsoever with anything. Imam Abu Hanifa himself, or Imam Muhammad, or Imam Abu Yusuf, sometimes had opinions completely opposite to what they claim. Yes, they claim So this is an even bigger problem. And I advise people that if you're going to follow any madhab, whether it's the Hanifi or Shafi or Madhab, at least follow it correctly, if you want. Especially if you're going to insist on following it, follow it correctly, because uh, if you follow it correctly, these are great scholars, and you will be much Inshallah, it's closer to the correct way. What do you do if a scholar makes the settle which goes against the consensus? Do we accept it? Well, if the, if the, if the question is asking in particular by consensus here means the Jama'ah, uh, obviously if a scholar goes against uh, an opinion in which there is a Jama'ah, a Jama'ah means uh, either all of the Ummah agreed upon something, or all of the Ulama agreed upon something, and either case is the same, because if the Ulama agreed upon something, it is obligatory on the rest of the Ummah to follow them. So, the both definitions actually are the same. There's a big discussion also just both about whether it's all the Ulama or the whole Ummah. Well, the Ummah is required to follow the Ulama, so the result is the same. If there is a confirmed Ijma'an, if there's a true Ijma'an, there's no question about it, especially those dating from the early years in which really the only true ijma exists, then if someone gives the fatwa that goes against that ijma, it is, uh, it is rejected. Because ijma is the third source in the, in the, uh, the <coughs> majority of Muslims lack knowledge and many are illiterate. How would you advise them to seek knowledge and prove the Islam Alhamdulillah, nowadays, uh, even if someone is illiterate, if someone is illiterate, I would advise them actually to learn how to read. <laughs> I, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's that difficult to learn how to read, inshallah. Uh, you can, uh, maybe your other brothers here in the mosque or sisters can help you. Because really, when you learn how to read, uh, and I hate to, you know, give a cliche, they have these uh, advertisements sometimes in the, in the States, you know, about learning how to read, you open up new worlds and so forth. But really, it's true, I mean, when you learn how to read, you are not just confined to the people that you know and so forth, but, you know, you can read, you know, like I've never met Ibn Taymiyyah, or I've never met Abu Hanifa, and I've never met the Sarafi, but I can read their work. So, it, is, it, it really is very beneficial. So, if the person has the ability, I, I, I advise them to do that. However, nowadays, alhamdulillah, as you can see, uh, reading isn't the only, only way, attending the mosque, being with good brothers who you can learn from. You know, some people, when you when you when you're around them, you can be around them for hours and you get no benefit from them. Some of them, you're around them for a few minutes and you get lots of harm. Some of them, you're around them either for a few minutes or a long time and you get lots of benefit from them. These are the people that you should try to seek out and spend time with them so that you always benefit. Or and also you turn to the tapes, you come to the lectures in the mosque and so forth. So even if you are uh, illiterate, inshallah, there's many ways that you can get uh, knowledge. Well, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to increase all of our knowledge and our support and to be among those inhabitants of the